You are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church, and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. Uh, let me give you kind of a heads up of what's going on. We're kind of officially, uh, you said, uh, some of y'all came up and said, I thought we were done with systematic. We kind of done, but I have some leftover stuff I gotta, we got to talk about, okay? Uh, so what's going to happen here, uh, May's going to be a little funny, uh, but if, if there's something going on, uh, so like next week we are going to have a course that's going to happen here, then uh, that's May 1st. May 8th is Mother's Day, and we won't have any course because I don't want to get in trouble with your mama, okay? So um, that's the May 8th. May 15th, we're going to start a new course that's going to go through the entire summer. Uh, that's May 15th, but then it's going to be like one week on to May 22nd, we're doing what we call Waypoint, which is a big uh, family church gathering kind of deal. So we'll start that first week, and then we'll jump back on the 29th to go all through the summer on the same course. And this course... Is, uh, it's going to be a little different than systematic theology, but I think just as important uh, in a lot of ways. But we're going to talk specifically about discipleship, okay? We're going to talk about what does it mean to make disciples, to grow yourself as a disciple. And so when we talk about getting very, very practical, we're going to open up God's Word and say, does discipleship even happen in the Old Testament, the New Testament? How did Jesus do this? How are we supposed to do our lives? And so part of the, what we're going to do this summer is um, we're going to really help you Make sure you know how to evaluate yourself, where you are, other people in your life, and to make sure that we are growing in this method of discipleship. And so uh, I'll be honest, it, it's, it's, it is the most important thing that I think we can focus on because it was the parting words of Jesus, right? He says to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded, and behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. The goal is for us to grow in Christ and not just have spiritual, emotional reactions, and then we get caught back in our old ways. We want to continue to grow, right? So this is talking about what we're going to be looking at is how do you become a lifelong follower of Jesus? Make sense? Like, how do I keep pushing in? How do I keep going forward and not just get stagnant along the way? So uh, I think it's going to be super important for us. So once again, next week we're going to have kind of an individual thing, Mother's Day, and then we'll start on the 15th. Make sense? Y'all good? All right. So what we're going to do now, we're going to uh, talk about thorough theology, okay? And I'm, I'm kind of excited about this just because of something that I think is very necessary for us. Uh, as, as you look at there in your notes, uh, it says to embrace a biblical theology, we cannot pick and choose which doctrines to accept, right? So we want to have a thorough theology, not just like, well, my mama said this, the denomination I grew up in. No, what, what does the Bible say? That's what we want to get after. What does God's Word say? By developing a thorough theology grounded in Scripture, we understand God as He truly is rather than who we think He ought to be. So let me tell you how, how important this is for us. So as I mentioned today in our services, we've had 47 people join the church over the last three months. That's just amazing. We saw 30 people baptized last Sunday. That's just amazing, incredible. But within this, it is part of our job as a church to make sure that we are following along biblical doctrine. And so just as an example, there has been someone recently um, that one time came to one of our church membership meetings, kind of here's what we're about as a church. And it was interesting because we got a message back that said, I'm, I'm not ready to join the church. And I said, okay, well, what seems to be the issue? I don't believe what you guys believe. I thought, huh, okay. You know, and I, and I said, well, did you come to the, the membership thing? We explained all of it. They said, that's when I knew this wasn't my church. I was like, oh, okay. Well, what doctrine was it? Because we just talked about the doctrine of uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the church, whatnot. And they said, you got to the um, talk about the sanctity of life. You started talking about gender and sexuality. And you said that the Bible says one man and one woman in marriage for life. And that's the only way. And I got a problem with that. 
And I, so my response is, now you know this is what God's word says, and they're, and they're saying, yeah, but I think, though I'd still want a church to have allowance for those types of issues. Now, when it comes down, you, you need to know this. If um, I, I can pick and choose what I want to in Scripture, and you guys can pick and choose something completely different, right? And so when we come down to it, it's going, what does God's word truly say on this issue? And, and so this is so important for us. When I say thorough theology, that um, the issue is if we decide that we're going to pick what we want, right? Take what we want, deny the things that we don't like, we're going to find ourselves in a dangerous place. So this is what I call the buffet theology, all right? Uh, now, here in a little bit, y'all, some of y'all can smell the food going on, and some in this room are going to have a feast in a little bit, and y'all are like, Travis, you got to hurry up because I am hungry, okay? Uh, but to do that, uh, I can think through the um, my... <laughs> The day that I got married, June 12, 2004, uh, I got my groomsmen together and I said, hey, we need to do something so I can keep my mind off all the nerves and all the anxiety, whatever. Like I, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to go skeet shooting. And you go, Pastor Travis, are you a big skeet shooter? Never been a day in my life. Haven't been since then. I just thought maybe guns will help me out. I don't know why, okay? But we went out to a field. Somebody threw some skeets out there. We shot some skeet for a while. And then afterwards, we went to a, a place uh, out there out near Lake Greenwood, that is a barbecue buffet, okay? Uh, it is a, I mean, when I say like barbecue buffet, this is the kind of stuff that like, it's going to hurt you. You know what I'm saying about? Like it, it's going to, uh, and so we, it was a hot, I mean, it's, it's June, right? You know, we've been outside or whatever. And so me and groomsmen, we go out and uh, we start eating at this buffet. And, uh, and we just eat like a bunch of guys in their 20s would eat to where like at some point, like, it's not like, oh, I'm full. It's like, I'm hurting. Like, I literally, I don't know if I can fit in my tuxedo. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get up out of this table. Like, I, I, I don't know. And so then we all go get dressed, and we go in there. Some of the guys are like, I'm not feeling so good. I'm like, well, we're going to have people, like, passing out in the wedding, right, because we just ate too much. Now, if you go through uh, a, a, any type of uh, buffet line, right, uh, the beauty of it is you're going to find things that, guess what, you want to come back for seconds on, Right. Then some of y'all are going to find some stuff like, no, nah, I'm not I'm not about that, right? Like you might find like Brussels sprouts or something on the buffet. I don't know why anybody would do that. But, or, or you may say something else and you just go, I don't like llama beans or I don't like whatever it is. I don't like macaroni and cheese, whatever. It, and you go, I want that, this, this, this. But those things I, I don't want. And the reason why I bring that up is uh, buffet lines are sought after by those who desire to get as much as they want of whatever it is they want, right? That's the beauty of a buffet. I know I'm making everybody hungry here, but... This is the understanding. Sought to get as much as you want of whatever it is you want, and you have the opportunity to say, I'm going to take certain things, and I'm going to pass on other things. That's what makes buffet lines so wonderful. And the reason why I bring that up is, is there's a lot of people in the church today that are treating God the same way we treat a buffet line. We come down the line, and we decide the things that we want to keep and the things that we want to get rid of. Our theology is often similar in picking and choosing what aspects we desire from Scripture. So I have done this before at the church and almost given people a heart attack before, but I've had a little notebook inside of my Bible, right? And I said, you don't, you get to a place in Scripture you don't like and you just tear this stuff out. People think I'm tearing a page from God's Word and they almost pass out on me. And I go, it's a notebook. Everybody calm down or whatever. And why does that frustrate you? Because we go, it would be so wrong for you to tear out a physical copy of God's Word. And yet, when I choose to refuse some aspect of God's Word, that is what I'm doing spiritually. I know you say this, but rip, I don't, I'm not going to follow it. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. So 
we place God upon a theological buffet in which we pick and choose those delicacies we enjoy and pass over the dishes upon which we would rather not chew. When it comes down to Scripture, what we find ourselves doing is, well, we put God on a buffet, we're the ones in charge, and we decide what things we want to keep and things that we want to get rid of. Folks, this is dangerous. It's so very dangerous because... When you decide that you know what's best to go on the plate, you know who you put yourself in the position of? God. Because God has told us in his word what he believes, right? What is truth. And the moment that you say, yes, yes, but no to that, you have now put yourself in a place higher than God. You are claiming to be God. And there is no greater rebellion than that right there. It's so important. Because we look at who God is, there is a perfection of, of God that is so important for us to think through. Because instead of making God behave like you think he should, it is far superior to embrace God as he is. Make sense to you? So instead of me thinking, I think God needs to be like me, think like me, act like me, vote like me, uh, talk like me. It's actually superior to embrace God as he is because even if you think that you have a better version of God in your mind, I guarantee this, you do not. There is no uh, getting greater than what God has said that we should be. God is exactly who he, uh, who he should be because no one could ever concoct a superior version than who he consistently remains to be. The perfection of God means this, that he is who he says he is, and I promise you, your version cannot be better, right? So if I think through, when, when I'm, I'm going through and trying to live my life and, and do my thing and see all different types of aspects, I can say to myself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to draw the Grand Canyon. And I'm going to take some colored pencils and I'm going to draw the, uh, the Grand Canyon on a note card. And you know what? I can be the greatest artist in the world. But is it going to look like the Grand Canyon? No. Is it as good as the Grand Canyon? The answer is no. There, there's no chance, right? And yet, what happens is, is that I kind of take these things, I know what God has painted through his word, and I go, I think I can do a better job, and it looks like child's play. It looks like somebody just scratching some stuff together, not doing what happens. And so, the issue is today, people are struggling with following the God of the Bible. You know why? Because these are ancient beliefs. This old time and stuff. It's been around for a long time. We're progressing as a culture, and we're getting better, right? Is that what we say? We tell people all the time, hey, we're getting better as a culture. And then I go, I'm looking around going, I don't think we're moving in the right direction. At least me. As I look at things, it does not look like it's getting better. In fact, it looks like it's getting worse all the time. So, so why is that? Well, we keep going to God's word and saying, I'm going to tear another page out. Not that one now. Not that one now. Not that one now. And now we're getting to such a tiny version of what God's word is, of what's acceptable. We, we don't have who God truly is. Now, if you go to... Uh, if you go to, say, China, for example, and you say, I'm going to go to a church, you can go to a church, and, uh, and, uh, and it can be a place that you don't have to be ashamed of going to, afraid of going to, um, and, and, and what happens is, you can have a Bible, but the Bible's not going to be as big as this. And you go, why? Because the approved Bible by China takes out a lot of books and chapters within here because some of them they deem as too dangerous. You're not going to find the book of Romans in a Bible in China. It's out. Other places that are a little soft on stuff, it'll be there. But other chapters, they're just going to be out. So you can have this Bible. But if you want the whole thing, and you want to go to a church that's going to preach the whole truth, you know what you got to do? you got to go underground. You ever heard of the underground church? It's, it's a group of people who go, I want the whole Bible. 
I, I want the whole thing. I want Genesis to Revelation. I don't want anything taken out. I want what God's word says. Okay, which you're going to be at risk. Well, guess what? There's In their mind, they're going, there's a greater risk than having a Bible and maybe getting arrested or killed. The greater risk is this, not following the true Jesus. There's a greater risk. So what they decide to do is, I'm going to go underground, I'm going to have a Bible that's full, and no, I'm putting myself at risk, but there's a greater risk of me trying to follow somebody else who's not. So when we come alongside, the issue is this. In the same way, we don't have an underground church that's going on in the United States of America, but I will say this. It's very popular to hold certain places of this word, right? It's unpopular to hold, hold the whole thing. Uh, people don't have a problem with you following Jesus up from a distance, right? They don't, they don't have a problem with you saying, well, God's loving and I'm going to be loving too. What does that even mean outside the cross, right? That's what's so shocking to people today. And so we have to get to what this is. So we get down to what God's word says. We get down to what it says about beliefs. And we have this countercultural thing going on that we believe. But we know that accepting ancient beliefs does not mean you hold antiquated values, right? So I believe that God said something, even if he said it thousands of years ago. It's an ancient belief. It's been around a long time. Guess what? It doesn't mean that his values need to somehow catch up with us. Because if they are true... Truth has no shelf life, right? So uh, give you an example of like a, there are books that are what some people would call evergreen books, and there are some that they would call like seasonal books. I'll give you an example. You could go to a church bookstore right now, and you could find books that actually people wrote that, sound, that have titles like this, How to Lead a Church Through COVID-19. Now that book was really helpful for a couple years, right? Do you think in 20 years people are still going to be looking for that book? I pray to God not. Please tell me, Lord, we're not going okay. I hope, I hope that's not even on the bookshelf anymore. It's a seasonal book, right? But there are some books that are evergreen. They've been around a long time. Why? Because it doesn't matter what happened. The mere Christianities, the pursuits of God, the, the different things like this that just, here's who God's Word says. And you come down to it, the truth is this. God's Word is the truly only evergreen book in the world. And so with it, what he said, even from the very beginning, if he is God, he is perfect. What he says is perfect, and therefore it needs no revision, right? It needs no edit. It needs no change. Eternal truths have contemporary significance. If these truths are given by God, and the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, there's eternal, and those eternal truths they have contemporary significance. So even in our culture today, God's word is the most true thing that we will ever read. God's directions are the, the surest directions we will ever find. There is nothing deeper than that. Isaiah chapter 46 verse 9 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. So he's the God from former things. And you go... So is it time for God to get a facelift? If there's something wrong with his face, then yeah. But guess what? There's nothing wrong with him. Remember the form of things of old. I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is none like me. I think this is funny right now because uh, if any of you follow NBA or anything, playoffs are coming on and everybody always has a discussion every single year. So-and-so couldn't play back in the 80s, you know? 
Lynn Beard and, and Bird and all these guys, they just cream you know, All these guys are so soft, they're flopping all over the court. If y'all ever watch this, like, you know, somebody sneezes on them and they're just like, <gasps> you know, and the referees are calling a foul and whatnot. And they'll say, you know, back in the day, right, people could get fouled and they could keep going, right? They, they, would, they would just keep going forward. There was something stronger about it. It's easy to look back and say it's a different time than what's going on. If we look all the way back, we see God is the one who is solid. Uh, firm, there is no shadow of turning with him, and if there is perfection there, then it's not within a few thousand years. He goes, you know what? I need to get the PR department together and see if my image can be a little softened up for everybody, right? Because who he is is just completely fine. He is perfect, and there is no need to change him. So the common thread, if you think about it, throughout the pages of Scripture, we find some dangerous trends that I want to point out to you because. From the very beginning of God's word, there has been a tendency to treat God like that theological buffet. Pick and choose. Take what you want, right? See what you can find. So we shouldn't strive to imitate Adam and Eve's rebellion to know what God knows. You know, I thought we should know these things. Oh, you should know these things, but there's also a certain level. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the hidden things belong to the Lord. There are certain things that you and I aren't supposed to get. You know why? I would just say this. If God in his perfection is so great and so wonderful and so holy and so noble that you and I in our finite minds can, can comprehend him completely, he is not that impressive anymore, right? If we could just easily kind of dial it up and figure it out. What were Adam and Eve's rebellion? Here it is. Uh, Satan knew this. Instead of wanting to be like God, they wanted to be God. And he says, are you sure you can't eat from that? And he goes, we can't eat. We can't even touch it. He goes, Pfft. You're not going to die. He's not going to do that. He knows if you eat of it, you will know what he knows. You will decide what is good and what is evil. You will have that knowledge that you are entertaining for yourself. So every time I sin, I am saying, God, I know what your word says, but I'm going to decide what is truth and what's not. I'm going to decide what is good and what is evil. I'm going to decide what's okay. And so um, I'm just going to be straight, y'all. I can justify a whole lot of crazy stuff. You ever been that way? You get hurt, you get tired, you get frustrated. You're like, mm, I, I can justify some stuff. And you go, I feel like this has happened to me, so therefore I need to respond like this. And, and somebody says, the Bible doesn't say that. Well, I know what the Bible says, but... I know what Scripture is teaching me to do, but... You're justified, right? You're justified to say, this is what I feel like I can do. I want to always go down that line. When, uh, I, you know, the, the mentality can be so, so simple for us to do. But uh, we want to say, I, I have justification. Um, guys, I, I want to make sure everybody here knows this. But if you could justify sin, if you could say, well, I'm having a hard enough day. My emotions are too rough. I just need to whatever. If Jesus followed that line of thinking, he never would have gone to the cross. Amen. He suffered. He went all the way with joy set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame. So we can't strive like Adam and Eve. But then you, you go on further and go, okay, so Adam and Eve, they start this whole thing going off. They get kicked out of the garden. And then all of a sudden the whole trip is to get back into the garden, right? God's people go into slavery, into a nation called Egypt. Now he's trying to bring them out. Here's God's people. Now we're free from Pharaoh. We're free from all that idolatry. We're free from all that horrible kind of system. We're not slaves anymore. And what do we do? We find ourselves that way we may not be in physical change. They were still in spiritual change. And what were they in spiritual chains over? We must see the futility of Aaron's error of carving gods out of the gifts that the true God gives us. Let me break this down for you in Exodus 
we see this. Um, you remember that time Moses is on Mount Sinai, right? He's talking to the Lord. Lord's giving him Ten Commandments. And uh, down there at the bottom of the mountain, something's happening, right? People come up to Aaron and say, Hey, Aaron, Moses has been up there too long. We think we need to get a different plan. Now, side note, but some, something that I think a lot of people in this room need to hear tonight. When we get impatient waiting on what God has promised us, we can make some really stupid decisions. God says, I'm going to do this. Why are you taking so long, God? I'm going to take matters into my own hands. That's what the people did. God's promised this. He says he's coming. Yeah, but it's been a while. I think he should have been, done, been here by yesterday. Come on, God. Hurry things up. So they take matters into their own hands. They come to Aaron. And Aaron says, what do you want me to do? Go, just, just make us gods. Just even listen to that. Make us gods? Shouldn't it be that gods make us, right? God make us like in some kind of way? He goes, no, let, 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 let us make the gods. And so Aaron says, all right, just give me all your gold. Puts all the gold together. And when Moses comes down and says, what did you do? He goes, these people, you know, they're always yelling and complaining about something. You know, Moses, they're awful. And you left me down here the whole time. So I just got their gold and I threw it in the fire and oh, out popped this calf. Right? It just popped out like this. I mean, what do you, what do you want me to do? Like, and so I just told everybody, hey, this is the God, the goddess out of Egypt. Y'all worship it. And we've been having this real raunchy worship service with a whole lot of stuff that is not in the order of service that we had prescribed together. And here we are today. And I, I, I didn't mean this. And, and the deal is you have to think about it this way. It's crazy. But how does a group of former slaves have enough gold to make a golden calf? Because if you go back a few chapters to Exodus chapter 12, it is because when the Passover has happened and the Egyptians say, leave out of here, all the Egyptians gave them all their gold and said, please take this from us so that your God may not be mad at us. So they took a gift from God and made a replacement for God. Something God gave them. Here is the gold. Here's all the blessing. Here's all these gifts. And they took that and they formed it into something they worshipped rather than they worshipped God for it. Now, folks, this is not too far of what you and I can do, right? Blessing God gives you, family, house, car, finances, health, you name it. And you go, look at this wonderful gift. You can worship God because of it, or you can begin to worship it. Here's what they did. They started to worship. And for us, when God doesn't answer on our timetable, get to where we need to be, what do we find ourselves doing? Let's just make our own gods. Let's follow our own things. Why? Because he's taken too far. People finally get to the promised land, and uh, Moses has died. Joshua has led them through a conquest, and they're standing there. They fought the last battle, and Joshua gathers everybody together on the field one more, more time. And he tells them that day, choose this day whom you will what? Serve. Whom you'll serve. And it's pretty, you know, a lot of people say, you know, can quote, as for me and my house, we will what? Serve. We'll serve the Lord, right? Got it. But what a lot of people miss is what he says. He says, choose the day whom you're going to serve, whether the gods of the Amorites beyond this river or the gods that your, your, your family served way back in Egypt, right? You can choose them or choose that, but here's what you need. Choose this day whom you're going to serve. And all the people stand up and go, we'll serve the Lord and him only. And then Joshua says something that is what some people will say is the most shocking statement in the Old Testament. The whole company of the Israelites say, only the Lord, only the great I am. We only serve him. Joshua goes, sit down and be quiet. No, you cannot. I know what you, your, your hearts are bent on evil. You're always, you're always. And he goes, 
Some of y'all got some of those statues still in your backpack right now. I know it. I know it. You hear it making all these commitments, but deep down there's this idol here. And so Joshua tells me, as you're not able to serve the Lord. People, no, 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 we're going to do it. We're going to do it. But Joshua's trying to get them to see something that we must be aware of the tendency to worship God in the tabernacle while having an idol in the satchel. It's easy for us to say, I'm going to worship God in here, but deep down these people were coming together in the tabernacle, worshiping the one true God. But when they went home, there was still that idol there in the satchel. They had seen the, the sin of Achan in the city of Ai, where they took those things and sort of made it for themselves. There were a lot of people who were following the one true God, but also had this God on the side, if you will, just in case things didn't work. They could always go back to it. Such a dangerous, dangerous tendency. How do we continue to the common thread through the Bible? So the people are finally established. Judges come in, the people are having a whole lot of issues, and so finally one day they come up and they say, Hey, Samuel, you're the prophet, you're the priest, right? You're the one who's kind of over all the spiritual stuff. We're asking that you need to do something. Is what you need me to do. We want a king. Why do you need a king? Because all the other nations have a king. Yet all the other nations also have a list of defeats from our God. So why do you want to be like them, right? Uh, well, no, yeah, but, but look, all, all the other nations we go to, they got a king. They got an establishment. We, we kind of want that. What kind of king they got? You know, it's somebody when you look at when he comes into the room, everybody's in awe. Like, we need one of those. Somebody who's tall, somebody who's handsome, somebody who's wealthy, somebody who's impressive. We need that. And Samuel goes, have you lost your mind? Uh, all the nations that we've gone up against have had strong kings, but we've had Yahweh with us. The great I am. And we have not lost a battle when we've been in step with him so what do you mean? But they kept, and, and, and their, literal, their, their whole thought process was, this was the qualifications for being a king. It wasn't that he'd been through king school. Uh, not that he had had some kind of impressive uh, resume. It was this. We want his external appearance to impress us. That's what we want. So God gave them what they asked for. And we must flee from the example of Israel when they sought to replace the omnipotent, all-powerful God with an earthly king of impressive physical stature. They put their hope into, guess what? Externals. They put their hope into what they could see. The things that they thought would be physically impressive on a worldly standpoint. And that worked really, really good until they come across somebody a little bit taller than Saul, didn't they? They put a lot of hope in a tall Saul, but when all of a sudden Goliath came along, Saul was in that tent saying, somebody else want to go down there? They put their hope in something that God exposes and goes after. You go to the New Testament, and what you realize is this, is that the religious people had all the Old Testament, they had all the expectations of what the Messiah was going to be, and then all of a sudden Jesus comes on the scene, and did all the people looking for the Messiah see him as that? No. They missed him. Oh, we should be cognizant that religious scholars were eagerly looking for the Messiah, met him face to face, and put him on a cross. This is how messed up our thinking is. We think we know what God ought to look like, do, talk, act. We've got it all figured out in our mindset. And here comes Jesus. They see him face to face, fulfilling every Old Testament prophecy of where he would be born, where he would live, how he would do his ministry, and even how he would die. And they never saw it. Why? It didn't fit their box. It didn't fit their box. And we can have that box as well. And all our expectations of what God should be, we are in danger of missing him altogether. 
the mentality, the dangerous uh, part where we can find ourselves in is that we think that we know who God is and find ourselves in a dangerous spot. I want to look at Galatians chapter 1 for a moment to, to see how this can play out for us. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Uh, Galatians is a different letter because when like Paul writes to Thessalonians, he's like, I love you guys. You guys are doing awesome. When he writes to Galatians, he's like, I want to take you outside and wear you out, right? He just goes at them. He just literally, like, I'm, literally, I'm so done with you people. He's done with all the welcomes and the niceties and all that kind of wonderful, encouraging stuff. He just goes at them, goes to the jugular within the opening lines of what he says there. Uh, look, look what he says. He goes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a what? Different gospel. See that? I'm astonished. You're like, this is verse 6, Paul. Don't you have some more warm, fuzzy things to talk about how much you love us and how much you pray for us? He's like, no. I just cannot believe you guys so early on in your faith have left Jesus and you are now fulfilling a different type of gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to what? Distort the gospel of Christ. Can I just tell you, there's a lot of people who've got a lot of following in the United States of America today that are preaching a different gospel. They have distorted what the truth of God's word is, and they have made it all about how you can make your life better rather than your soul getting fixed with Jesus. And so we've got to be dangerous because it says, oh, distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or a what? If an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul, if an angel comes and tells something, we should listen to it. He goes, there's another angel who left heaven one time with a different message. Don't listen to him. Right? Satan is an angel. Uh, he was an angel of light. He came down and he can even appear today as an angel of light. He left heaven because, why? I don't like the way God is doing things. I want to do it my way. And that's what he causes every single one of us to do as well. Um, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Not let him be blessed. Let cursings of God fall upon that man or woman. Folks, this is important. And, and so why, why, why would Paul be so specific in this? He, he's, he's saying in this that out of a concern for a church that was altering the gospel's message, Paul understood they were ultimately trying to recreate the identity of God. You want to distort it, you want to change it, you want to alter what you were after in the, in, the, in the realest sense is this. You're trying to recreate the identity of God. You're trying to make him look like who you want him to be rather than who he truly is. And these dangerous members desire to trouble others by distorting the gospel of Christ. Folks, it's not such a bad thing that messes with your own soul, but you start teaching somebody else this way, you are now um, discouraging them from following the real Christ, and that's going to be on you. The reality is this. I, I am leading my kids to try to follow Jesus. And I can paint them a messed up picture. Um, we read today a call of worship, Exodus 15.2. It always chokes me up because it's the beginning of the psalm. They're at the beginning of the Red Sea. Moses starts singing this song. He goes, this is my God. And then he says, this is my father's God. I will serve him. And I always, when I hear that, it hits me so hard. I think if my kids one day were not walking with the Lord, and then all of a sudden the God of the Bible came up to them, and this was his introduction. Hey, I'm, the, I'm your dad's God. What would their reaction be to that? Like, oh, that guy? Oh, that guy? And that didn't mean a whole lot to our dad, right? Or is it, oh, you mean the faithful, true God? 
the one who's been consistent throughout my life, the one that he was so much enraptured with his entire life. This is our father's God, our dad's God. Yeah, we, we want to follow him. But I, I'm responsible not only for my own soul, but for what I'm teaching others. Now, as they're distorting the gospel of Christ, we have to realize that churches throughout history have done the same thing by turning away from a biblical gospel and denying the biblical attributes of God. When people find something they don't like about God, they just take it out. And they put something in that they think works for them. Folks, it's, it's satanic. That's all I can say about it. It is satanic. You're putting yourself in the position of God thinking that you know better than him. Will we give way to political and peer pressure? Or will we seek to stand firm on an authority that has a longer shelf life than a meager couple of years? Y'all do realize this. I know there's some... Uh, Folks in this room that are younger than me, and there's some folks in here that are older than me, but I don't care how old you are, the culture has changed the last five to ten years, has it not? Amen. Aggressively so. It's not slowing down. The progression is continuing to go. And I am seeing a lot of people, a lot of churches, a lot of denominations, a lot of Christians folding to political pressure. Well, the, polit the politics of the day says this is accepted now. I don't care what the politicians say. I care what God says. Right? I don't care what the public opinion says. I care what God says. I don't care what the Supreme Court says. I care what God, the one true judge, says. That's where I'm after because at the end of the day, all those folks are going to be gone. He's going to be here. What does God say? But also peer pressure. Folks, I know that you're feeling it. Uh, you try to follow God's word, but now your mom says this, your dad says this, your sister says this, your kids go, I can't believe you believe those old things. Come on, you got to get along with what everybody else believes. Well, if everybody else believes something wrong, I still would say, you know what? I'm going to follow God even if no one else does because his way is true, right? Amen. Let God be true and every man a liar, right? Like it, I, if that, that's the case, like I, I, want, I want to live my life in, in that type of way. Amen. And our longings to appease our appetites, and to achieve others' acceptance, we have tried to recreate God in our images. We want, deep down, to appease our appetites of the things that we want. We want to achieve others' acceptance of what people are saying are okay for us. And we've tried to recreate God in our own images and making him to be something that he is not or should he ever be. In this mentality, it is such a dangerous place because Galatians 1.10 says it this way. If I were still trying to plead, or uh, am I seeking the approval of men or of God? If I were still trying to seek the approval of men, I would not be a bondservant of who? Christ is what verse 10 says. We need to know that we can please man or please God, but it is doubtful if we can do both. You've got to make your decision. You're going to please God, or are you going to please what other people say? Because Paul says it this way in verse 10. Um, I can seek for your approval, but guess what? I won't get it from God. I'll seek God's approval. I might get it from you, but it's got to start here. I want the approval of God more than anything else. The cultural tendencies, this is what it lands down to. In a definitive study of God, we find the perfect one who needs no alterations. God does not need to be changed because we have arrived or we think that we know better. There is no altering this one true God. He is God in all of himself. He does not need any way for us. We cannot improve him. Any adjustments made to him would disfigure the ideal face for which our souls ultimately long to behold. So you try to adjust him. You try to change him. You try to disfigure him to your liking. And what you have to realize is this. It's not making him look any better, right? 
So uh, some of our ladies were on ladies retreat this weekend. My wife was there Friday night. She said that uh, they did this activity, right? They said that they asked for eight volunteers, four ladies up front, four ladies in the back. And they said basically the ladies from behind them had to fix their hair and do their makeup for the lady in front of them, right? Can you imagine, okay? Like they just, it probably, I'll just say this. I saw some of the pictures. It was not some of these ladies' best moments, okay? Right? When somebody comes along and says, like, I'm going to do this from behind. I can't really see everything. Clearly, I can't do it. But I'm going to beautify you. What happens in that beautification process? You need some help at that point, right? (laughs) The end process is is not that these ladies will look more beautiful, but actually they, they look less than because somebody is trying to do something they ought not to do. And we come and try to put some, uh, some color on God's cheeks. We are not making him more appeasing uh, in any type of way. We are not making him more appealing in any type of way. Uh, we have to realize that among all our attempted edits upon God, we look at a portrayal that no longer looks like God. The more that you and I try to edit him to our liking to be who we think he ought to be, to look like what we think he ought to look like, we come up to a portrayal that no longer looks like God. We're not, it's not the identity that he's looking for. So I give you an example. Uh, in a certain situation, if someone has witnessed a crime and someone comes in and says, hey, can you tell us about the person who did it? And you start saying, let's just say I was the person who did the crime. And the person's got the, the thing they're going to start drawing. Okay, tell me what it looks like. Man, he has some beautiful long hair. Okay, <laughs> draw this picture. Did he have a beard? No, he had no beard, right? Uh, was was he muscular? Oh, he was just so, so muscular. Now, just go with me, okay? So they draw this picture, and then all of a sudden they start giving out this picture to all the people to start looking for this guy, and guess what? Nobody's going to find him. Why? Because you painted the wrong picture. You're looking for the wrong guy. And our things of making God look like this and do this, and we're trying to say seek him, what we're going to find out is this, is that we've told people in the streets to seek this God who does not exist. He's not that identity. It's not who he is. For all the divergent adjustments I endeavor to make, I end up beholding not a picture of God, but a reflection of me. When I edit God the way that I want him to be, I am trying to make him look more like me. And in essence, all I'm trying to do is just switch seats and take a spot. That's all I'm after. I want God to be petty like me. I want God to vote like me. I want God to get frustrated at the things that I get frustrated at. And what happens is I'm not looking at God anymore. I'm looking at myself. And what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 33 is, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And when we take God's word and just completely throw it out and say, I'm going to create God in my own image the way that I want to see him, we are denying that one true God from the Bible. And if we've denied him on this earth, when our end of our days happen, God's going to say, I deny you as well. You didn't want me? Guess what? This is the way you you wanted some other God. You didn't want the God of the Bible. You wanted the God of your imagination. You wanted the God of the mirror, the God to look like you. The denying the identity of God will lead to removal from the presence of God. If you deny who God is, who he says he is, the true identity of who he is, it removes you from the actual presence of God. He says, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Which makes sense that at the end of all our days, if we're removed from the presence of God, we do not have the opportunity to be with him in heaven forever. It only makes sense that what happened since our lifelong attempts have been focused on altering his identity in the first place. Satan wants to take over if Adam and Eve want to change things up. If all of our life has been what the uh, 
The philosopher Voltaire said that in the beginning God created man in his own image and ever since then man has been trying to repay the favor to create God in our image. No doubt that it would happen because we wanted to take and change him from the very beginning. We must embrace who God is now in order to embrace him forever. If you want to be with God forever, you've got to accept him now as he is. Not as who you think he ought to be, but who he truly is today. Who he's always been. Yesterday, today, and forever. To embrace him forever, we must embrace him now. To be received by the Christ, here's the reality. You will be rejected by the culture. If we're going to hold to a biblical belief, if we're going to do things God's way, I promise you this. If you're going to be received by Christ, the culture will turn its back on you and come at you, fight you, tooth and nail to your death. And scripture says in Romans 8.31, but if God is for us, then who can what? Amen. Who can be against us? I also thought about this way. I was, I was reading through that the other day in my quiet time, and I thought about it this way. We always say if God is for us, who can stand against us? But I also flipped it. If God is against me, who can stand for me? You know, if he's, if he's against me, I don't care how many people I got. I'm, I'm outnumbered. I'm, I'm done, right? I'm outmatched. I'm in trouble. So if I'm going to receive Christ, I know I'm going to be rejected by the culture. So what happens is I feel this tension. I want to, oh, can I, can I be loved by God and loved by the culture? Can I, can I follow along a biblical truth and let the whole culture accept me and, and appreciate me and I still be a part of the crowd? And what happens is you want to find yourself fudging on certain things that God's Word said is true. Don't bend the Scriptures if they seem to break your system. If God's Word is God's Word, then you need to let it break you instead of you trying to break it. It's not you to bend against it, and it's not up for God's Word to bend according to your wills, your desire. You've got to say, what, what, what does God's Word say? So if, if you come into conflict and you feel like God's Word is in tension with how I feel, I can promise you I know who's wrong, right? It's not God. It's not God. It's going to be us. And so don't bend the scriptures. Don't twist them. Don't start tweaking them a little bit if they seem to break your system. Embrace who God is rather than who you want Him to be. Because only then will you truly find the God that we need. The God's not the God of our own liking, the God of our own making, the God of our own desire. We're actually going to find the true God who's actually more than who we ever could think that we would want Him to be. Know this, what the end words of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is what? It's foolish. It's foolishness, uh, foolishness to those who are what? Perishing. Perishing. But to us who are being what? Saved, it is the power of God. So, as we try to stand on this word, guess what? To those people who are walking away from Jesus, it's going to seem folly. It's going to seem ridiculous. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God right here, right now, and for eternity. And for your word, King Jesus, we celebrate and we thank you, God, for the fact that you are with us and that your word needs no edit, no revision. It is perfect. You are perfect. And we don't need you to bend to a, a to find commonality with us, but we need to repent and change our lives to be in step with you. Help us to be people who have a thorough theology through and through to know that your word is sufficient, it is perfect, and God, we want to follow you all of our days. This is the name of Jesus we pray and all God's people said. Amen. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.